As you can see, the title will be Logos, Life, and Light of Men. I kind of want to just shoot through John 1, 1 through 18, a little bit of an expositional style. Um, this will probably be my first time doing anything expositional, so we'll see if I can manage this and not be uh, too con- uh, convoluting or something. Um, I do have a purpose for the sermon. I wanted to try to draw out a series of um, themes and images and symbols that John utilizes throughout all of his writings. Uh, He obviously wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So there are common themes and images, um, and they are very much, at least some of the big ones, are contained in John 1. So if you can kind of grapple with the way he relates them, specifically, the Word of God, which is translated from a word called Logos, uh, or uh, word Logos, uh, that it's the light of men and it's life itself. And so seeing how they interplay in his language and trying to hold those um, images in tension is definitely one of the things I want to try to bring to, be- uh, bring to bear because that is going to show us Christ. Those are all aspects of who God is, divinity, but also Christ himself incarnate. So holding truths in tension, we'll try to touch on that, but aside from being super abstract like I normally am, we'll go to just normal Christology and soteriology today. (laughs) Just some basic stuff. So let's go ahead and observe the scripture, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. I'm reading from the NASB for the record. A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and called out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who is coming after me has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. This is holy territory, so it's a little daunting to try to tread on these words and try to (laughs) fumble around in my human understanding. So I'm going to try to keep myself composed today, but this is, these are some of the most precious words in the entire Bible. So um, 
No small, no small task here. Verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. What this should immediately harken back to is the creation motif. You should hear in the beginning and instantly think Genesis 1. <laughs> That's, that should be obvious. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness. And then on the first day, what does he do on the first day of creation? He separates light and darkness, right? We'll get into that a little bit more detailed, but no matter what, you should hear Genesis 1 when you read John 1. There is a side note here that I, I, I don't want to try to develop this too much, but I wanted to at least give a uh, passing observation. A genealogy of Christ is presented here and through the rest of these 18 verses in the same way of the other Gospels, uh, the way they begin. Um, if you remember, in Matthew, there's a genealogy um, that proves that Jesus is the king of the Jews, right? In Mark, there is no genealogy, which is actually extremely important because the, a theme of Mark is um, Christ as servant, and therefore he has no reputation. He's just a man, is just a man. And that's a very important dynamic to see there. In Luke, of course, you have that genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam. He is the son of man, is the genealogy that that proves. And in John 1, he is the son of God. So you see that he came from God, he was with God, he was equal with God, and um, was indeed acting and active um, in creation along with God. So the Son of God who comes from the Father brings many sons to glory, and the family of God is therefore described. So there is a genealogy present in John 1. So that's a side note, I don't want to go any deeper into that, but to just kind of give that observation. John is establishing a precedent for the word logos, that's the point I really want to drive into. When we see in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that, and the Word was God, that is the Greek word logos. So in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. So what is the logos? How do we understand that? How do we unpack that word as the divine, an active agent in creation, and as we will see, the active agent of a new creation? So there's two different ways to slice it, a Hebrew understanding and a more Hellenistic or Greek understanding. So Hebrew understanding of the word of God is the divinely powerful force that spoke all things into existence. You'll see this um, throughout the Old Testament, um, referred to in the Psalms especially, but um, in Genesis, God spoke all things. So the Hebrew understanding of the speaking of God, the word of God, it's a, he is creative when he speaks, he's powerful and sovereign, and he defines all of reality with it. Wisdom is also one of those things that is immediately equated with the word of God, that powerful active activity of God. Proverbs 3, 19 through 20, um, that powerful activity in creation specifically, literally in creation. I really want to drive that creation thing. Proverbs 3, 19 through 20, the Lord founded the earth by wisdom. He established the heavens by understanding. By his knowledge, the ocean depths were burst open and the clouds drip with dew. We see the Lord founding the earth by wisdom. And knowledge and understanding accompany this, right, in the, in the image. All the heavens and the earth were designed intelligently. Okay? Every, in Romans 1, helps us understand that every person alive knows that. 
That is what's called natural revelation, if you will. Every person can engage and understand that God, that there is some sort of design or mind behind the universe and all of creation. It, that was not lost on the Greeks. That was not lost on the Hebrews. Of course, the Hebrews knew that it was God, and they attributed it to um, Yahweh and understood him as creator. Um, but the Greeks, they had a word called the logos to describe that intelligent design, that divine mind behind the ordering of the universe and so forth, of all of creation. There's a blueprint, if you will. They could observe that through natural revelation as Romans 1 and Paul clearly described to us. But what's interesting is there's this guy named Philo. Okay, This guy named Philo, he is a Jewish philosopher, but a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. He literally lived in Alexandria, um, studied, you know, there was a library in Alexandria. It was, it, was a, it was the center of the Greek world, right? Even after Rome dominated the world, Alexandria was still an extremely important center of culture and Hellenistic culture in general. Um, but learning and schools and universities and philosophers camped out there and they all hung out and talked about stuff. Well, Philo's this Jewish guy. He's a Jewish philosopher and a Hellenistic scholar. He employs the understanding of Logos and tries to unite the Hebrew and the Hellenistic understandings of Logos, Word of God, and so forth. So he actually kind of pioneers this, um, pioneers this uh, usage. And this is a historical um, backdrop for the way that John employs it. So that's why I'm bringing it up. Um, he's uh, in the first century, of course, so he's actually... I think if I'm remembering from what I read yesterday, it was 30 to 40 AD. So, I mean, we're talking first century, time of Christ. He was, this, this was the way this word was starting to develop through Philo's contributions in particular. Um, though the Greek didn't equate God to creation exactly, one God to all of creation, the Hebrew mind did. But they observed enough order to be able to try to put, those, put this word together, and Philo united that. That's pretty important. So John, like Philo, blends the understanding of both Hebrew and Greek into the definition of logos. It's imperative to observe the way that this language develops, right? Um, I do want to put the disclaimer in there that I'm not trying to equate Philo's usage of the word logos in any authoritative fashion. It's just a backdrop to understand how language develops. But then when you have an authoritative, inerrant, inspired, God-breathed, scriptural witness like John the apostle, <laughs> putting, employing this word, we know that's the authoritative standard. But to see the similarities is to understand the backdrop of the day and how John brings it into real light, real truth, real um, authoritative application. So anyway, that's a little bit of background. Obviously, he's authoritative. I think that's what this one, he equates logos with divinity. John's usage of it very much equates divine attributes to the Logos. And he's divinely relational as well. The word was with God. There's, and that word, is, I, I won't remember which Greek word, sorry. I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, so I'm sorry about that. Um, but it's, it's a with as in face to face. There's widths that are, there, there's a width that's side by side. And there's another width as well, like you're in the company of, but there's a width that's face to face in an intimate fashion. That's this width that the word is with God face to face. That's the picture that it describes. So there is an intimate relationship established in John's testimony 
of this divine Logos. And he's eternal, the Logos is eternally existent and present at the beginning of creation. And all things that have come into being have been made by the Logos. Literally the testimony. That's incredible. Verse 4. In him, the Logos, was life. And the life was the light of mankind. I really want to stress the tension in equality of life, which is zoe, which generally is like a spiritual life, but like a, 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 a being life. It's, it's more than bios, which is like natural physical life. It's zoe. It's more of the spiritual life. And light of men with the logos. There is a tension and an equality that goes on there. They're even. So when we're talking about this life, it's a divine life. When we're talking about this light, it's a divine light. It's a divine logos. It's a divine word, life, light. And this is probably, the way I understand it, is a major hermeneutical rubric for decoding the Johannine, uh, the, the Johannan, Johannan, that's it, yeah. I had the pronunciation on Google yesterday, so I was trying to practice it, make sure I didn't screw it up. <laughs> the Johannan literature. Um, he uses this, this, this is a, the way he interprets not just reality through the revelation of the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ that he knew personally, but his entire theology that comes from the Old Testament scriptures being Jewish is what John is. John is Jewish. He has hermeneutics. His theology is on display here, and this helps us gain an insight as to how he actually equates and relates all these things. Um, and again, he reapplies those in his epistles and in the book of Revelation, which is beyond the scope of today's, but I just want to make that point. So John 14, 6, Jesus actually says, according to John's testimony, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So now we have a couple other images, the way and the truth, that are equal with the life, or sourced at least from the same place, the life. And we know that life, light, and logos are all together. So now we're starting to have all of these different images attributes, descriptions, ways of looking at Christ overlapping each other. That brings a lot of dimensionality and a lot of color to, the, to the, our Christological sense, our sense of Christ. So I, I, I love this. this is, I, I, you can always sit there and just ponder this stuff. It's, it'll never go away. So John quotes Jesus and adds the way and the truth to the life logos tension. I find equating symbols and imagery helpful in holding that truth and tension. One of the hardest things to do is to appreciate a both and rather than an either or status or a relation to truth. So many times truth being manifold or many facets like a diamond. Diamond has many faces and many angles, right? All of those angles, if you turn the diamond, will, reflect, will refract the light in just a little bit of a different way. But it's still the same light going in. Still the same diamond, but it bends the light and it helps us see things just a little bit different, a little bit more. Manifold truth, manifold wisdom of God is described, I believe it's in Ephesians, and that's employed there. And when we talk about the truth, capital T truth, the I am the way, the truth, and the life, we're talking about a manifold truth that will, the, as you observe it, as you change your perspective, as you consider it in different angles, it will indeed take on new dimensionality. It will become, you will gain a further, fuller perspective of who truth is, what, what truth is, but you'll find that he is a who. <laughs> you'll find that he is indeed personal, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
So holding truth in tension as you observe the different facets and being able to hold them in tension is necessary to the renewing of your mind. It's necessary to think the thoughts of God. It's necessary for the word, the logos, to dwell in you, to grow in his word, to grow in his logos. You have in the truth of God to have that living light life inside of you. You have to observe it from all these angles and hold them in tension. So often we want to pit one truth against each other. That's probably the biggest bummer of Reformed theology. <laughs> Everybody wants to make it a black and white issue and argue that this one nullifies this one and this one nullifies that one, when in fact it's entirely possible, not every time, but it's entirely possible and should be humbly approached, that if they were just overlapped, it would describe the picture far more accurately and truthfully. Holding truth and tension is a necessary aspect of your scripture studies, and it will renew your mind. Verse 5, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. The light is the life-giving logos. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend, grasp, understand, or agree by belief. That's what that word means, and I think it's genomae or something like that. I didn't write it down. Um, but the bottom line is the darkness couldn't lay hold of the light. So what does that create? That creates a separation between light and darkness. Now we're back to the creation motif. First day of creation, God separated light from darkness. And in this gospel, we see a new separation that's coming from the Logos that is talking about the entrance of the light and the Logos, the life of God, into our darkness. This is a new creation separation. John is saying that God did a new thing. He created afresh. And there's creation language to describe it. A new separation of light and darkness. Now who's involved in this darkness is a good one. But let's read, I guess, um, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is Genesis 1, of course. And the earth was uh, formless and desolate emptiness. <laughs> And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, or one day, as this particular translation puts it. we immediately realize that the separation of light and darkness occur, that occurred on the first day of creation in Genesis is the same separation of light and darkness that's occurring at the beginning of this new creation. In John's gospel, God is again creating according to and through his logos. Verse 6 through 8, A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John the Baptist and John the disciple, were, whom Jesus loved, were not the light. I know it's automatically assumed that John the Baptist is being referred to here because he is. But I hear something else from John as I keep reading this over and over and over again. He doesn't want to name himself, which is why he calls himself the disciple whom, God, or whom Christ Jesus loved. Right? I find John overlapping meanings over and over again as I, as I read more and more of his, you know, as I go deeper into his writings. I can't help but hear a meta-association 
a multiple meanings, if you will, of John saying that him and John the Baptist, these two Johns, were, were to testify about the light, but they aren't the light. And he's, it's another aspect of hum, humility. Now, this is me just pontificating. I've never heard anybody really make this point, but it's just, as I hear it, I, just, I hear this echo that John in his humility is trying to say, I'm, I'm not this. But the point is, is why would I even go to that point? Why would I even make that point? John likes to overlap symbols, um, but his testimony is the same. His testimony and his purpose for writing the gospel is the same in uh, chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. He says, So then many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's actually the purpose of the testimony in John 1 that John the Baptist is giving. He testified about the light. Why? So that you might all might believe through, through him and receive the, light, the life. The testimonies are the same. So could there be an overlap meta-narrative? Maybe. Or meta-association, if you will? Maybe. Um, not a huge point, but just something that I'd, I'd try to draw out if I was, as I ponder this. The testimony about the light for the purpose that all might believe through him. The authorial intent and the witness of John in chapter 1 are the same uh, with John 20. Through the testimony, you may believe unto life. It's an evangelistic point. Like John, the, uh, the apostle, is literally an evangelist in this. His motive for writing the gospel of John is to help you see Christ enough to believe on him and have the life and be filled with his light and be, have fellowship with him and all other Christians and the Father, as he puts it in 1 John 1. Which the overlaps of 1 John 1 and John, especially in John chap, the Gospel of John chapter 1, are incredible. Verses 6 through 8 also proclaim a hope in the midst of an overwhelming darkness. Um, I personally hear Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 2 at that point. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Deep darkness covers the people, and darkness covers the earth, and light has come. That's what Isaiah's words are, and in verses 9 through 11 of John 1... This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. The world is under darkness. If you don't receive the light, you're in darkness. You're separated from the light, right? The world's separated, and, verse 11, he came to his own. Deep darkness, the peoples, and his own people did not accept them. The, world is the earth is covered in darkness. Deep darkness is over the peoples. So automatically, the light entering into our situation and light and darkness being separated, now we have the world and people separated from the divine light. And therefore, they remain in darkness. The world came into being through him. Is the same language of verse 3. All things came into being through him, the Logos. The world and his own are therefore in need of salvation. Which brings us back to the main themes of John. 
evangelistic themes, eternal life, salvation for the world and the people, and new birth. He talks a lot about new birth. But he does so in reference to the light, the life, and the logos, the word of God. Verses 12 through 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Being born again, also called the new birth or regeneration, are very much what this gospel and the first epistle of John focus on. And John repeatedly uses light and life and the function and power of the Logos, the word of God, to articulate this imperative event in the believer's relationship to God as Father. And, it's, and as I studied different commentaries in like, you know, the ESV study Bible, it, it's okay. Like some of the things they say is just, it's, it's unfortunate actually. But a lot of it is good and it does give you a good springboard. But again, they're in that mindset of trying to say this one's a superior rendering versus that one, whereas they're both valid <laughs> on a lot of times. They don't hold those truths in tension in the ESV study notes sometimes. Not to discourage you from reading them, they are helpful. Um, but one of the points that I like to bring out is that John, the Gospel of John, is about individualistic relationship to God. I find that to be ridiculous. But that's exactly what they want to say. In contrast to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, who want to emphasize the kingdom of God. And that that's a repeatedly uh, in the community and so forth of God in this kingdom type of mentality. I don't see individualism as much as your relationship to God initiated by God is an individual experience. You're birthed into the family of God because the son of God, the elder brother, if you will, is the one who made the way for you. None of that is lost in the John, in the Johannine literature. (laughs) None of that is lost in those texts. The new birth brings us into the family of God because God, our father, is now a valid relationship. It's a new relationship. Children of God, therefore, believe in his name. Children of God are born. There's a genesis. There's a beginning. Out of divine power and volition. The word volition, a synonym is choice or choosing. It's the exercise of the will. And you're choosing. So God's choosing, his choice, even election, is all um, comes from his volition. God initiates the creation of his children, and this new creation comes out of the dark of the old creation. God sends his creative word to separate old from new, light and darkness, and creates children of light that have his light and his substance. Dare I say, his DNA. He is, God is light, and his children would be light. Their life would be marked by light. 1 John 1, the epistle, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous, so that He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his logos is not in us. His word is not in us. For us to be made in his image, as God is light, to be children of light, the word has to be in us. When the word is in us, we are created according to the pattern of the new creation. Remember, Logos, Greek concept, blueprints of the universe. Well, there's a blueprint pattern of this new creation. And he is, and it's found in the word of God. We have everlasting life. And we are made children of light because the God who is light is our father. He has taken us out of darkness and placed us into the marvelous light of his son. By giving us the ability to believe his word, Logos. This is John's main theme, and then the big one. This verse, verse 14, is what separates Philo, the Greeks, the Jews, from the truth. This one makes the distinction. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The gravity of the statement cannot be understated. The drama and tension of the entire Old Testament and the hope of the future culminates into this twist of design by the eternally existent Logos. The Logos took on flesh and tabernacled among us. God himself condescended and emptied himself of equality with God to become man and dwell among us. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. The light of the Logos shines in the darkness and gives life to men. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the word skenao. I think I might have even gotten that close. Skenao, if I remember, which means to pitch a tent and live in it, essentially. The picture of tabernacle is actually, so the tent and tabernacle are very synonymous, but tabernacle um, is immediately brought to mind. We have to see Sinai when we hear this word. To, to understand what John is going for, because remember, he's Jewish. He has Old Testament scriptures in his mind and all the images, and he sees the fulfillment of all of those images in Christ. The picture of the tabernacle, where God pitched his tent in the midst of a people at Mount Sinai after the Exodus. This is where God married Israel and formed their nation. John is drawing a parallel between the tabernacle of the Old Covenant with the incarnate Logos of the new creation in covenant. John relates the Sinai imagery more directly in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. In case you missed the tabernacled word, he reassociates Sinai and Christ. Moses receiving the law at Sinai. But grace and truth, the fulfillment of it all, is realized through Jesus Christ. We are supposed to associate the coming of God to make a people by his own power, choosing and faithfulness at Sinai, with the same manner in which this incarnate Logos comes to us to give us new birth. 
full of grace and truth. Grace is the empowerment to be what God has called and purposed us to be. It is by grace that we are saved, not the will of man or his works. Only by the will of God are we given the right to be children of God, taken out of darkness and made light in the Lord. 18, no one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son who is in the arms of the Father, He has explained Him. The ESV reads a little bit easier than the NASB in this point. I like it a little bit better. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. When I hear that, I'm instantly taken to the creed, right? That's what echoes in my mind is Nicene Creed. God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him, all things were made. Jesus, as the Word of God, the incarnate Logos, is God and reveals the Father's heart and mind to the newly born children of God, that He made and gave the right to be part of the family of God. This is truly grace and the will of God. It's the fulfillment. It's the fullness of grace and truth. This is the gospel. Obviously, John is preaching the gospel to us. He's preaching the good news of God, the Father, calling a people out of darkness and making them new creation. A new thing has come. Arise, shine therefore, for your light has come. Receive him, believe on him, and this word will give you life. And this life will be the light of men. It will be your light. Jesus came from God and is God. The incarnate Logos came from God and is God. He is faithful and true word, Logos, of God. His testimony is true. And in believing it, we have everlasting life. We could keep going on this for a long time, so I'm sorry I'm over. I'm just trying to make sure I don't miss any of the main points. But I want to kind of set this idea before us, because I think I can probably do this two or three more times, going through, I really wanted to go through John 3, and that will probably be next. But then understanding John 1 and understanding how all those light and life images and the new birth and the, what some I've heard people call John 1, 1, a litmus test for whether or not you're in the faith and so forth, to understand how that litmus test is trying to prove whether or not you've actually received the word and you believe in his name, that you are born again and that you have fellowship with us and the Father. That you're part of the family of God. This is the testimony of the disciple whom Jesus loved, after all. So, I will throw one more thought out there. I think it's in Acts, and me and Adam looked it up one day. Um, because if you do a word search of, um, of word... In Blue Letter Bible, you get the exact one that does Logos, because there's a few things that can be translated word, but you find out Logos, and you see all the different times in the New Testament that that word is used. 
There is an instance in Acts, and I won't remember the actual reference right now because I didn't prepare it in my mind. The word of God increased in their midst. And many, and all that were saved, I believe, all that were apportioned salvation or, or apportioned faith received it and came to came to new life, essentially. I'm, I'm mangling that, that text, but look for that. Look for that in Acts. That's your homework. Go find that. <laughs> um, but it's the word of God increasing in their midst that actually brings many sons to glory. It's the word of God increasing in their midst that the eternal life of God is, is increasing, that the light is shining in. And it's the relationship that they have through the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ himself, the word incarnate. That's increasing in their midst. And I want that for us. I want that word to increase in our midst. I want Christ to be magnified in our midst. I want us to see him as the source of all light that gives the light of men to children of darkness. We are saved by grace through faith and believing in his name. If the guys who want to, are going to prepare communion will come forward, I'll do a communion meditation really quick. Um, Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The Passover was the first day of the Jewish calendar because it was to be the beginning of their nation. It was celebrated annually. At the end of the old covenant, Jesus institutes the new in his own blood. His body and blood are forever tied to the Passover meal that's been celebrated for thousands of years prior to this meal, his last supper before he suffered. What is remarkable to me is that he earnestly desired to eat this Passover with them before he suffered. So I came about observing this text because I was looking up the word epithumium, which is uh, generally translated uh, lusts or passions, referring to youthful lusts and so forth. And so on, in that vein, and all of a sudden I come up to Jesus saying he's got this lustful passion. Is that what I'm reading? What am I reading? He has this epithumia for this meal. And that was what pegged my interest. So I started looking at it. Um, it's actually the word that's even translated coveting. You can see this in Romans 7, 7 and 13, 9. Um, and epithumio is the other word uh, that's, that's actually translated covet. Thou shalt not epithumio. Um, but Paul learns about his epithumia, his coveting, because of the law, right? Okay, so anyway, that's how the word works. 
What's also noteworthy is the repetition of the tenses. Earnestly desire is literally epithumia, epithumio. It's like he's doubling down on it. <laughs> or maybe put another way, I covetously covet to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I don't know if you've ever said, I covet your prayers. You ever said that? There's, there is a coveting is probably not as breaking a Ten Commandments. When I started to look at this verse again, though, I noticed another word play. The word Passover and suffering are Pashka and Pashko. Whenever, so I don't believe that Jesus actually held, you know, the, the Passover in Koine Greek. He was probably speaking Aramaic, I would assume. Um, but Luke, who's writing this and giving an account, employs the two words. They are so similar. And anytime you see similar words in the original language, there's, there's um, a ring to it, just like a, a rhyme or a, uh, um, I, I, I want to say a word that I don't think I know the definition of, so I won't say that word because uh, I can't remember if that's the right application. These are plays of words. And it's so that when the scripture, because there weren't many books back then, they didn't have printing presses, they read out loud. And it would trigger memories, it would trigger thoughts, and that's how the entire Old Testament was really written, um, especially the book of Genesis. It has so many word plays and so forth that if you can find words that are very similar in sound, that was supposed to immediately associate something else with you. It was supposed to trigger an association. So Pashka and Pashko in Greek, in this particular one, Passover and suffering are linked. It's a word play. Jesus likely, uh, sorry. So what he's saying is, and what Luke's trying to record, is Jesus communicating to his disciples that he is suffering, Pashko, as the Passover, Pashka, Lamb of God, for the institution of the new covenant people. The association is clear. His body and blood, broken and shed for the cleansing of our sin, perform the same function as the Passover Lamb did in the institution of the nation of Israel. This is a meal of new beginnings or new birth for the identity of the people. He covetously coveted to bring a new thing, a new institution, a new, a new covenant in his blood. And call all of us to it. He earnestly desired to do this. My encouragement would be that our admittance to this table of fellowship with God as his family was desired, covetously coveted by our Lord, the Lamb of God, and let us also with him desire to be with him where he is, desire to be with him as much as he desired to be with us as we come. So please come to be with the Lord.